Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Kathleen Vanderwill. Hello, everyone. Glad to be back. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us once again. We have another opera that is, I dare I say, based on, not really, a written work. It, it takes the essence and the spirit of a written work and then pretty much invents all of the rest of it. But we'll, we'll talk about that more. But yes, it is the, the autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini by Benvenuto Cellini. And today's opera is called Benvenuto Cellini by Hector Berlioz. It was Hector Berlioz's first completed opera. One you would think that he had planned during his years in Italy after having won the Prix de Rome, but we're told no, he really didn't plan it there. It was later on after having been exposed to this autobiography, which had recently been published in French, following, I believe, Goethe's translation of it into German. Before we go down too many details on that, do you want to tell us who Benvenuto Cellini was? Absolutely. So Benvenuto Cellini is somebody who was very well known in his day in, during the Italian Renaissance. He lived from 1500 to 1571, and he was a goldsmith. He primarily lived in Florence, Italy, although he, he spent a lot of time in Rome as well. But he's most well known as the sculptor of a very famous statue in the Loggia in Florence called Perseus with the Head of Medusa. This is probably a, a very recognizable image, even if you don't really know anything about the Renaissance or, or even art and sculpture. It's just something that we kind of, I think it's in our cultural consciousness. And it is a, it is a, a nearly naked Perseus, and he is holding the head of Medusa, who he has just slain. And it is absolutely striking. And that is his most well-known piece, but he was extremely proficient. He was extremely prodigious in how much he created. And his autobiography, which he started when he was 58 years old, and he he dictated to an assistant until he was 63. So he, he spent a good portion of his life writing this autobiography, it was one of the first times that an artist had done that, had really talked about their daily life. And so one of the things he's most remembered now for is, is the amount of detail he gave to to chronicling his own life. Well, having read the book, I found that it really conjures up this atmosphere of what it meant to be somebody who was working for dukes and princes and popes and kings and and how difficult that could be, but all the while it's colored by Benvenuto Cellini's own great self-regard. He's not a modest man, which is understandable under the circumstances. But he's also not one of these kings or popes or dukes. He's not, he's not at the top of the social hierarchy, but he does mix with those people. Yes, throughout the whole autobiography, one of the, the strands is he's always trying to keep his, his father in funds because he doesn't really come from a rich family. He, his father was a musician and was obsessed with his son also being a musician. And yes. Benvenuto spends the first, uh, God, first hundred pages resisting becoming a flute player because that's what his father wants him to do. But yeah, there's always this hovering sense that, um, that there might be financial disaster if Benvenuto doesn't keep the right people happy and doesn't keep producing. But there is, as you said, he has a great sense of self-regard and he 
believes in himself completely. He believes that he is going to be the greatest, one of the greatest sculptors and goldsmiths in the world. And of course, the thing is, he's right about that. So it's a yes. little bit hard to, to hard credit to him. As, yeah. Right, to criticize him, because he's right. He actually is able to achieve that. Yeah, and his works remain. And things done in metal will last the centuries. And they do. Mm-hmm. Some of these pieces that he that he created when he was working for the King of France, Francis I. They're just unbelievable how detailed they are. Yeah, and a lot of the things that he created, so there's there's been a lot of doubt cast since he first published this autobiography and since it was translated that it couldn't possibly be accurate, that it had to be a lot of at least exaggeration. And there is exaggeration in there. There's a lot of spiritual elements where he's talking to ghosts and things and, you know, but, um, but people thought there's no way he could have created all the things he said he created. And it's only really honestly in recent years that we've been able to pull together a lot of his lost artwork. And it, it of course turns out that he really wasn't exaggerating that much. He really did create most of the things that he said he did. Um, my favorite little anecdote is that like one of the things he said he created turned up in one of the cupboards at Buckingham Palace when they were doing a spring clean. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> which my God, what else do you have in those cupboards? Um, but yeah, so, uh, so much of his artwork was scattered over the years because it just went to so many different people that paid for it. And you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a, a need to categorize all of it so even even to this day we're still finding lost Cellini artwork and so Cellini and his self-regard and his enormous accomplishments were inspiring to Hector Berlioz Hector Berlioz this immensely talented artist who I dare say he felt underappreciated in his day this was his first opera and Honestly, it may not be familiar to even regular opera goers because it's not seen all that often, not as often as Les Troyens or La Damnation de Faust, um, other Berlioz operas that we've done on opera for everyone. But it's an important one because the people who took the time to really delve into the music were impressed by it. There was a lot of criticism for this opera for sure, but but there was there were a lot of people who were impressed. Of course, the musicians themselves, the singers and the instrumentalists, oftentimes complained about it because <laughs> it's really difficult to pull this one <laughs> off. But part of what we're going to deal with today is that there were various versions of this opera. It was originally premiered in Paris at the at the at the opera, the the opera, the grand opera there. But the initial pitch was to the opera comique. So the recitatives were spoken dialogue, not sung. But when the opera comique rejected it, he didn't just downscale, he upscaled and and reworked it to, uh, and he reworked it to present it to the opera. And in fact, it did premiere there in September of 1838. But Berlioz had a lot of enemies at that point because he was a reviewer and he wrote a lot of articles and said unkind things. Oh, everybody so, loves a critic. <laughs> right, exactly. It's tough when the critic is also one of the people putting themselves mm-hmm. out there. So, you know, there's some question as to how sincere the criticism was. There was certainly some legitimate criticism, but there was yes, also I, a little anger at how he had spoken about other people. Yes, it's, it's an odd 
choice. I, when I learned it was Berlioz's first completed opera, I thought it was a strange choice of subject matter, almost like, you know, perhaps something he, where he should have followed the maxim of kill your darlings, where it seemed like something that he was really interested in personally, but I think would be hard to translate for other people, partially just because, and we'll talk about this for sure later on, but uh, it's a very specific world that it presents of the Italian Renaissance. And that world is just not like any other time. It has its own specific mores, its own politics. I mean, you could say this, I suppose, of any time, but it's, it's, it sort of feels like its own little capsule. So conveying what that's like and entering into that, into the spirit of that, I think, is, is a difficult thing to do. Well, we've, we've teed up a lot of topics for discussion, <laughs> but let's, let's now turn to the opera itself. It's a two-act opera. There are two tableaux per opera. And the first tableau is Shrove Monday, the Monday before Ash Wednesday. And we are at the home of Balducci and his daughter, Teresa. Balducci is the treasurer to the Pope, so we're in Rome. And he's getting dressed to go out because the Pope has called for him. And he's with his, his daughter. Yes, Balducci is, is going to meet with the Pope in order to set up a conversation about the statue that we mentioned. The Pope has commissioned the statue of Perseus from Benvenuto Cellini, but Balducci does not like Cellini. And in this first scene, we, we come to understand why he does not like Cellini. Well, let's meet Balducci in song. for everyone and we are listening to the opera Benvenuto Cellini by Hector Berlioz and I'm here with Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen, we've met one of our characters. Yes, Balducci, the overzealous, overprotective father of the beautiful Teresa. Balducci has just sung about, well, 
what every father, I suppose, is worried about when you have a beautiful young daughter, mm -hmm. which is that he is he is afraid that she is falling for somebody who's unworthy, that she's throwing herself away, and that she's becoming over romantic. So he sings basically, don't don't look at the moon, don't don't engage in these little yes. stereotypes <laughs> that lovers do. You're too young for that, and I don't want you to be a fool. So he's trying to warn her off of an attachment to to someone he seems to think is unsuitable. And he's also dropped the hint that, never mind, dear, I know who's suitable for you and the man that I would like you to be attached to. He is of my choosing, and he is a sculptor. And his name is? He is Fiera Mosca. That's right. Not yes. Cellini, the, the title Not character. Not Cellini. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Cellini actually doesn't get as much of a look in in this first act, really, to say, to say the truth. Um, it takes a while for us to actually actually talk to Cellini. First, we get to know, yeah, Fiora Mosca, his rival, both in sculpting and in love. Right. Balducci, Teresa's father, is annoyed that the Pope has chosen Cellini for this great commission. And he thinks, well... Fiera Mosca already works for the Pope. He should he should choose him for this great commission. Well, we know from the title of the opera who's favored here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So having given all this advice to his daughter about how to behave, he of course leaves for his appointment with the Pope, and she is completely relieved that he he's gone. Mm -hmm. And while she's enjoying a little bit of freedom to herself, we hear all kinds of commotion going by because after all, it's Shrove Monday. We're almost into the Lenten season. There is, uh, there's a whole carnival that's, that's going by and, and Cellini and other people are, are there on the scene and they're all celebrating this carnival. And as they go by, they take these, um, these pellets of like wet flour basically <laughs> and they pelt Balducci with them to make him look like a fool so he's he's got to go meet the Pope <laughs> looking like an idiot not not at his best after he's just taken care to dress yes he's come back briefly to do something or other um and and say some awful things about Cellini mm -hmm. but he still has to get off and go to the Pope can't keep the Pope waiting and meanwhile, some of these same people who are pelting flour to create white spots all over the clothing of Balducci, some of them are throwing flowers, bouquets of flowers, to the beautiful Teresa. Yes, of course. And, and, and among those is our, our lover sculptor man, Cellini. He, <laughs> he throws a bouquet in through her window and, and she picks up this bouquet and inside of it is a note from Cellini saying that he is the one who threw it, that he's below and that he wants to come up to see her. Yes, that's very romantic, very mm -hmm. much in contrast to what her father said she should fall for. But of course <laughs> she does. And she sings a beautiful song about wanting love and all of the things her father is afraid of. Yes, of course. Yes, his fears were well-founded. <laughs> Yes. Yes. And and I just want to make one comment before we listen to some of this. This is one of the songs that in the rehearsal process originally before the premiere at the Paris Opera, this song was replaced by another song 
called Between Love and Duty. So we're going to listen to the song in this version, which is based on the original version. By the way, we're, there's, there's Paris One is what this is called. This is mostly Paris One, the initial opera as written and presented by Berlioz. Paris Two is what emerges after a lot of changes early on. Um, and then ultimately, because that was so criticized, there's this version known as the Weimar version, which is created and premiered with a lot of input from Franz Liszt a friend of, well, of so many composers, honestly, but of Berlioz in this case, um, where Liz said, no, no, I, I think I can help, I think I can help make your opera, Benvenuto Cellini, more popular. There's a lot of great stuff in here, and let me do some trimming and cutting and suggesting to you. So, so the Weimar edition is, in fact, sanctioned by Berlioz himself, because he was there to do it. But there's some question about which version do people want to play? And for a long time, Weimar was the dominant version. It's, it seems now that the Paris One version, or at least as a starting place, the Paris One version is is coming into its own when, in fact, this is played. So we're going to listen to her original romance about love being in her heart. Once it's there, it's not going to leave. And we'll listen to a little bit between love and duty. Oh, 
Teresa singing Entre l'amour et le devoir between love and duty. young woman, our beautiful young woman, is alone thinking about her love. She's not going to stay alone for very long, is she? No, Cellini, um, Cellini does come up and tells her that he loves her, he's been thinking about her, and he wants to rescue her. He wants to steal her away from her father, because the father is, has turned out to be a bit of an impediment to their love affair. And this is very... This is very Benvenuto Cellini. Throughout the autobiography, he falls in love with many beautiful women and um, mm -hmm. steals them away or tries to steal them away. So although this character is not in the autobiography, this is a very <laughs> typical scene. Yes, and he's, he's a sweet talker. Mm -hmm. I love you more than life itself, he tells her. And, <laughs> and she's all ears to these words, pretty words. <laughs> Yes, Cellini and a lot of the other people that we know of who are famous Italian Renaissance figures, there's this sort of, uh, you know, jack of all trades thing. It's, it's He's not just a good goldsmith, he's also a good musician. He's not just a good musician, he's also a good lover. So yes, he is, he is a smooth talker and he's going to um, have his assistant and himself, they're going to have this elaborate plan in order to steal her away from her father. They're going to be disguised. <laughs> they're going to be disguised as monks. Of and course. Of course, right, as you do. Um, they're going to be disguised as monks, and during the Mardi Gras celebrations, everybody's going to be looking at the big carnival and not paying attention to, to them. Then they're going to steal her away when everybody is looking at that, and when the cannon sounds, he says, the cannon at the Castel San Angelo sounds to mark the end of the carnival celebrations, then he'll take her away. So you... You expect at this point for there to be this glorious love song between these two, but it, that's not how it plays out in this opera. 
No. So you've got this absolute slapstick comedy scene instead. <laughs> that I just, I mean, it's its pure Marx Brothers. It, it just makes me laugh. So while he's making love to her with his words here, behind the curtain <laughs> is Fiera Mosca. Yes, he's, he's also... He's tiptoed in. <laughs> Hoping right, to have some time room. alone with this intended. Uh-huh. And Cellini is there. Uh-huh. It reminds me of nothing so much as um, the old Pink Panther movie where <laughs> there's a scene where the Cluzo has got one lover under the bed, hiding under the bed, and another one comes in and then hiding that one in the closet. <laughs> um, but yes, Fira Mosca has tiptoed in and he's eavesdropping on them. Um, and he, he hears, he hears part of this plan. Yes. But <laughs> it's not just Fiera Mosca and Cellini. Balducci, the father, is also coming home. <laughs> so you've got this, like, triple layer of badness happening. So Balducci is coming home, and Fiera Mosca hears Balducci and goes and hides in Teresa's bedroom. And Cellini hides in another room. <laughs> No, and Teresa no problems. Is, yeah. Right. <laughs> so Teresa doesn't know Fira Mosca's there, but she knows Cellini's there. So she's got these two men that are hiding and she's trying to distract her dad. And so she tells this story about her dad. She says, oh, oh, there's a noise in my bedroom. Something's there. Something's going on. Because she wants him to go into the bedroom so that Cellini, who's in the hall, can escape. Slip out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. So... <laughs> So Balducci goes into the bedroom, of course, to investigate this mysterious noise, and Cellini slips out. But then, of course, Balducci sees that Fiora Mosca is hiding in the bedroom. Scandal. Even though he favors Fiora Mosca, he's not supposed to be in his no. daughter's bedroom. No, that is extremely improper. So they they're, they're freak out, and they call on their servants and all of their neighbors to take Fiora Mosca and dump him in the fountain. <laughs> And Fira Mosca runs away so that he doesn't end up getting dunked in the fountain <laughs> by Baldrucci and Teresa. So it is absolutely hilarious slapstick comedy. And I, I do love how they do this. Most operas would take this opportunity to have a, a long, beautiful, drawn-out love scene. But instead, we get this incredibly funny trio. And we're going to listen to some of that. <laughs> Avez-vous dit là, cette voix est cruelle Au matérisant, nos prénoms, notre doute Au gazon fleuri, que jamais n'a de doute À que bien les prix, si j'avais mal de pierre À que au moins, ne soyez pas des mères Écoutez-moi bien Ne Demain, c'est pas Mardi Demain, c'est Mardi Demain, demain, Mardi J'ai tout, ni mon rapima, quoi tu dis, quoi ni mon pima, je n'en doute pas, je n'en doute pas, pas cette colonne, la seule colonne, colonne, casse-moi de l'eau, casse-moi de l'eau, casse-moi de l'eau, mais donnez-nous pas la peau, attendez qu'on est bien tout trop, venons-y de votre pays, nos éclats, vous prendrez les bras, je prendrai les bras, les bras, et moi n'est trop pas pris, 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 Oh, 
for everyone and we are listening to Benvenuto Cellini by Hector Berlioz and we are not quite at the end of the first half of the first act but things have gotten quite silly here we've had (laughs) the true lover sneak away successfully we have had the the man who is hopeful to win Teresa's heart completely humiliated in front of her and her father but he has overheard a little bit of Cellini's plan. And the father, because he's found Fiermosca in the bedroom of his daughter, has called (laughs) all the neighbors to throw him into the fountain. (laughs) And we're we're about to end this particular scene with him screaming, I'm like Orpheus in the grip of the Bacchanites. And and just to put the finer point on that story, that those women killed Orpheus by tearing him into pieces and putting his body into a stream. Yeah. So the, so the fate it, that awaits him. 
it, it doesn't end quite that badly. I'm happy to say a, a comic scene like this doesn't have quite such an awful ending, but he is completely humiliated. <laughs> Let's hear this final piece of the first tableau of Act One. <laughs> the end of the first tableau of Benvenuto Cellini and to start the second tableau Paris one will start jumping right in with the artisans and Cellini and some of his workmen singing about drinking a a rather a staple of opera songs (laughs) but one of the songs that was added there to well some say to placate the tenor who was singing the role of Cellini originally is a song called glory was my only idol And we're going to hear just a little bit of that to get a sense of Cellini, not just as a somewhat comic figure, because there's a lot of comedy in this first act. But he talks about how glory was everything to him until he found Teresa. (laughs) And Kathleen, as someone who's read the actual autobiography, Mm-hmm. Does that ring true that glory ceases to matter over the love of a woman? No, not really. I, I mean, there are certainly women in his autobiography that he seems to to be very fond of. Um, but often they're as mixed up in his art as, as anything. They're, they're not really separate. You know, one of the first women that he speaks of as a potential mistress is, is a woman who commissions work from him mm-hmm. and is a, is a patroness of his. Cellini, one of the most notable things about the autobiography is that everything that happens is written in the same 
tone. It's all the same register. So getting a commission, going on a journey, having a relationship with a woman, burying your father, it's all the same tone. There's mm. not really any... Like, you can be talking about, he could be talking about the death of his brother, and then two paragraphs later be talking about how fun it is to drink with his friends and, and this new commission he's got. He just switches so fast and doesn't try to really, like, uh, to make you sympathize with him or, or any of that. He's just sort of recording. It's almost like a diary, in a way. Yes. So I would say... This is a much more dramatized version of his relationships than he himself described them as. Right. And, and no, absolutely nothing was more important to him than his fame as a, as a cultsman. Right. His fame and his glory with the, the important people of the world. After all, that seems to be what's behind the creation of the autobiography itself. Yeah. Yes. No, it's not a love story, as the simple <laughs> way of saying it. It's, it's not. It's, it is a story of his work, not of his, his love life, really. Mm, but we opera listeners, we do love a good love song. We do. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, let's, let's hear him sing about how glory once was the motivating passion until Teresa. we've heard those very serious and tender sentiments from Cellini. We can turn to the fun of the carnival that's about <laughs> to take place because this is the day, Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras, and he's out with his friends. He's got big plans that involve Teresa, but before any of that needs to be put into play, he's going to have some fun. Yeah, and this is a this song that we're about to listen to is a perfect counterpoint to the song that we just listened to because this is a song all about why he loves being a goldsmith and a and an artisan. 
So, so really the other side of, of what he values in his life. He and his friends start singing a drinking song, and, and it seems like they're gearing up for one of those classic opera drinking songs, but they cut themselves off quite quickly to sing about the thing that's really important to them. He says, let us sing and our song not be about drinking, but about a hymn to the glory of our art, uh, you know, what it's like to be an artisan. And this and then is they... the song that's known as the Chisler's Chorus, the, mm -hmm. the, the Goldsmith's Chorus. And it's not a drinking song. <laughs> no, but it, it shows you just, I would say that this is one of the, the points in the opera where I feel like Berlioz really, really gets it right, the feeling of the autobiography, because... I agree, yes. Being an artisan, being able to make your money as an artisan um, in this time period, that is, I mean, that's the height. And, and that's one of the things that makes the Renaissance what it is, is that the people in power, they valued artisanal work and they paid well for it. And that's why you have this flourishing of art in Florence and Rome, because you have the Medicis, you have the popes. They are putting a ton of their resources into really cultivating it as the, the center for the most beautiful art in the world. So there is no better time and place to be a goldsmith. And that's that's what they're singing about. What a, what a wonderful life they, they have for themselves. Right, and they will mention artists who work in other medium, like the painter has color, the marble is for the sculptor, but gold, that's what we work with. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is, this is wonderful. One of the more evocative songs that really meshes with the, the feeling of the book, of the autobiography.
just heard our chorus and our characters singing about the importance and the joys of being artisans in the trade that Cellini practices in this opera from Hector Berlioz, Benvenuto Cellini. But one of his workmen decides he wants to sing about the praises of wine anyway. So, <laughs> so Bern- typical. <laughs> so, yes. So Bernardino sings in praise of wine anyway. And as long as the topic has come up, the innkeeper shows up and says, um, I have quite a quite a bill here to present to you. There's a lot of bottles of wine on this list. And it's feeling a little uncomfortable for <laughs> our friends. <laughs> Until Ascanio shows up and he's carrying a heavy bag. And hopefully that contains some money. <laughs> yes. And Ascanio, tell us about Ascanio. So Escanio is, uh, he's basically the assistant to Cellini. He's a trusted apprentice, basically. And and this role is a, is a breeches role, as we have spoken about before. So that is why Ascanio sounds like a woman, because Ascanio would have been, would have been played by a woman. Ascanio doesn't really have a direct corollary in the story. The uh, Cellini dictated the autobiography. He began to write it when he first got the idea, but then decided that was far too much work. And so he he wanted to be able to continue working while he talked about his life. So he had his most trusted apprentice, who was crippled, actually. It couldn't move around and do as much work as the other apprentices. So he gave him the task of writing down the autobiography as he dictated it to him. So I, I think there's no direct person that this is in the autobiography, but but Cellini kind of always had some young boy apprentices around him who were, who were helping him with his work. As most master craftsmen yeah. would have mm-hmm. at this time. This would have been typical. <laughs> right. So he shows up at just the opportune moment when money is owed and he's got a heavy a heavy bag. And we're going to hear Ascanio happily delivering this money and how the men respond to that. (laughs) 
Cellini are thrilled to see that Ascanio has brought money from the Pope, no less, because of this great commission. And they can pay their bill with the innkeeper, but when Cellini pours out the money onto the table, they're not so impressed with the amount. No, so this is for the the commission we talked about at the very beginning, the Perseus statue. And, and Cellini has been expecting that this will be a large amount of money, but we know that Balducci has been pouring a bit of poison in the Pope's ear about Cellini. So the idea is that the reason that the money, the advance is less than is expected is probably because Balducci has been meddling. Right, because Balducci is not just the father of Mm -hmm. the woman that Cellini loves. He is also the Pope's treasurer. Yes, so he has a lot of power in this situation. Not enough power, though, to, to get Cellini kicked off the commission right away because once again Cellini is an incredibly skilled artisan and and that's despite anyone saying anything bad about him his work is better than Fiera Mosca's but there's also another condition that Balducci has managed to have asserted into this advance which is that the statue of Perseus must be cast on the next day immediately the Pope has gotten tired of waiting for it basically and, and so, that rings true to the autobiography yes, itself. Yes, it does. Because these patrons, whether they paid on time or not, were always upset with him about how long <laughs> things were taking. And sometimes they were taking a long time because he was promised gold to work and they never provided it. But that never seemed to matter much to the patrons. Yeah, yeah. There's, I think, probably a lot of um, customer service issues in the Cellini business. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, too, Cellini delays because he's working on something else for somebody else. And mm-hmm. he's, he's kind of double dealing a little bit, too. But yes, there's many instances where the timing is an issue. I do want to say really quickly, too, that we know that this commission has come from the Pope, which is it, it's set up neatly in the opera that the Pope is a recognizable figure that we know commissioned art. So it makes sense. But the Pope is not the person who commissioned the Perseus statue in real life. That was Cosimo de' Medici 
of the famous powerful Florentine Medici family. And although this probably doesn't matter too much to the casual viewer, to make the Pope be the one that commissioned it instead of the Medicis is a pretty significant historical collision. Right. The Medicis commissioned the statue um, and had commissioned many statues that, that stand in the loggia in Florence. And each one of them has a very specific significance to the person who commissioned it, etc. And we don't have to go too much into that. But it is a nice little neat trick that Berlioz pulls to make it clear that a person of power and influence commissioned it. But to those of us who really like the Italian Renaissance, it's kind of an unforgivable change. And along those lines... The revisions that occurred with Paris One, one of the revisions was that they had to change the Pope to a cardinal because mm-hmm. it was forbidden to portray the Pope in an entertainment of this sort. So they had mm-hmm. to, even though he was written as a Pope by Berlioz, he became a cardinal for a period of time. Now we're okay presenting <laughs> the Pope this way, or at least an, an historical Pope. <laughs> Um, but anyway, they, they have taken this information. Cellini is very upset by both of these things and decides that he's going to take it out on Belducci by mocking him at the, the carnival. And this, this also strengthens his resolve to steal Teresa as another way of getting back at Balducci. Yeah, Balducci is, does not come off well. He is a buffoon in this show. So as one might expect, they've been talking in public this whole plan and It just so happens that Fiora Mosca has been hiding behind another door, listening to them talk. I don't know why. He's a little weasel in this show, isn't he? Fiora Mosca. He just seems to be everywhere. Um, So he has been eavesdropping again, and he has once again heard this plan. And he talks to his friend and says, we got to do something. We have to stop him from stealing Teresa and making a fool of Balducci. But he has no idea what to do. But fortunately, his friend's a little more on the ball. <laughs> Fira Mosca's many things. He doesn't seem to be that skilled at his job, and he's not that clever. So it's it's no no wonder that Teresa isn't super impressed. But yes, he has a he has a smart friend, Pompeo, who says, "Well, why don't we just disguise ourselves as monks too, and then steal we, his plan? We, yes. can, we can steal Teresa, and no one will be the wiser." So that is the plan that they're they're going to put into place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they are going to put this plan into place, but before they go to the carnival, Fiora Mosca has to take a second to to talk about how great he is, because I'm sure he's feeling a little down that Teresa's not interested. So he sings this very beautiful, very funny song about how he doesn't understand how anyone could possibly resist his wonderful self. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
For Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewill. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright. And I'm joined today by Kathleen Vandewell. Thank you for being with us today, Kathleen. <laughs> I'm I'm very happy to have you here with this very rich material, Benvenuto Cellini, that great Renaissance artist, in the hands of Hector Berlioz in his opera by the name of Benvenuto Cellini. And I should also mention that the librettists for this opera were Auguste Barbier and Léon de Vailly. And on the particular CD that we're listening to today, this was a recording made in 2003 with the National Orchestra of France and with the Radio France Choir. The conductor was John Nelson. The role of Benvenuto Cellini, sung by Gregory Kundi, Teresa, sung by Patrizia Cioffi, Balducci, sung by Laurent Nauri, Ascanio, sung by Joyce Di Donato, Fiara Mosca, sung by Jean-François Lapointe, and Pope Clement VII is sung by Reynaud Delegue. A huge thanks to everyone involved in creating this beautiful music. And now you know what it's time for, Kathleen. Is it the Opera Helmet Quiz? Yes, and you get to take the quiz. <laughs> would you please bring us up to speed on where we are in the story? I would love to. 
So as our story opens, we meet first Balducci, who is the Pope's treasurer and, and has significant power in Rome. He has a beautiful daughter named Teresa, and he is in charge of a commission for a statue, the statue of Perseus with the head of Medusa. That commission has been given to our Benvenuto Cellini, who is a, a master goldsmith and sculptor, but Balducci wishes it had been given to his pet sculptor, Fiera Mosca, who he also wants to marry his daughter, Teresa. So we've got a love triangle, we've got their daggers drawn over this commission, and Cellini wants to steal Teresa away from her overbearing father, and so he hatches a plan that he is going to dress as a monk with his trusty sidekick, Ascanio, and they are going to steal Teresa away from her father while Carnival is going on and everybody's looking, you know, the other way. But Faramasca has heard this plan. He has decided, along with his friend Pompeo, that they're going to do the same thing and dress as monks themselves <laughs> in order to yes. confuse things. So where we left our hero and heroine and various sidekicks and, and, and nemeses is we are right before the big carnival scene. We've got two sets of monks. They're both going to try and steal Teresa. And, and that's where we are. Yes. It's very dramatic, this life of Benvenuto Cellini. Um, so much so that I'd like to just take a moment to mention a lot of other dramatists tackled his life. This autobiography was inspiring to a lot of other artists. There were two other operas based on his life. Sadly, none of these operas, even though Berlioz is, is, is the most well-known of them, none of them is performed with any frequency. Franz Lachner, German, wrote an opera, Benvenuto Cellini, there's not a lot of information available about that, but Camille Saint-Saëns, that well-known composer, wrote a grand opera at the end of the 19th century titled Ascanio, so it wouldn't be confused with Berlioz's work. And that was based on the play Benvenuto Cellini, which was written in France by Paul Meurus in the middle of the 19th century, which in fact itself was based on the novel by Alexandre Dumas-Père, who wrote a novel about Benvenuto Cellini that also had a lot of information about this Ascanio character. So it's it's not that Berlioz and his librettists make up Ascanio out of whole cloth. Also, there are movies based on him in the early part of the 20th century. 1934, The Affairs of Cellini, starring Frederick Marsh and Fay Ray, among others. And, and then there was a Broadway musical called The Firebrand of Florence with Kurt Weill being the composer and Ira Gershwin was the lyricist. And it was based on a play that had been written on. So it's just, it goes on and on. He's, this autobiography he wrote, it was unique for the time to get that kind of insight and inspiring for the adventurous life that Cellini lived. It's true, and, and I think there's a there's a funny quote that I'm sure I'll get wrong, but it's something about Cellini might not have been the greatest goldsmith. This is one of his critics, but he's famous for being the best person who wrote about being a goldsmith. Um, you know, and he was friends with, with Michelangelo and knew all these people at the same time, rub shoulders with all the people we do recognize the names of today. But he managed to retain his fame, I think, in large part because he wrote so much about himself. Back to our story. We're about to have the crazy festivities of Mardi Gras begin and all these shows. And it's a wonderful scene for an opera because you have an opportunity to put all these different characters in costumes and bright colors. And it's a fun bit. So Teresa 
is about to be confused. Yes. So as, as you might imagine, the fact that four different people are about to dress like monks is going to cause some confusion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As we open our scene, everybody's outside enjoying Carnival, and they're at this particular booth that's presenting a pantomime of the story of King Midas. You know, some people may remember Midas as the the king who everything he touched turned to gold because he he wished for for untold riches, and of course that was a, a be careful what you wish for story. Yes. But these these pantomimes were often used as a way of doing subtle social criticism as well. So in order to make fun of Balducci, they've dressed Midas so that he's unmistakably meant to be Balducci. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so Balducci himself, the real Balducci, is in the audience. We've got the faux Balducci on stage. He's standing there with his daughter, Teresa. And then we've got this pantomime going on. And there's different characters in the pantomime who are competing for the favor and attention of the king. Sort of similarly to the way that Firamasca and Cellini are trying to get the favor of Balducci for both the commission and, and the hand of his daughter. So art mirroring life. And of course, we've seen this play within a play technique used often, most famously perhaps in, in Hamlet, where Hamlet uses the, the pantomime to tell the story of how he thinks his uncle has killed his father in order to marry his mother and reveal, catch the conscience of the king. So that's sort of a version of what's happening here. And we have these lovely little songs by these different characters, the Harlequin and the Pierrot, who are competing for the attention of King Midas. Yes. And because Berlioz speaks so much through the orchestra, it's not really the voice of the Harlequin we hear because he's being drowned out by all the spectators. It's the orchestra who carries his song and we hear the beauty of his song and we know that he's meant to be the best in this competition, even though we're not actually hearing him sing, we're hearing the music of the orchestra. And as this pantomime is going on, Balducci has been in the audience. He's rather disturbed. He's not somebody who takes satire of himself, criticism of himself well. So he approaches the stage, perhaps to try and stop this from happening. And in doing so, he leaves his daughter alone. And all four of our monks see this as a perfect opportunity to snatch her away. And they all four converge upon her in what I can just perfectly picture what the the movie version of this would look like, where all four monks point at each other. (laughs) And Teresa is, of course, terribly confused. She doesn't know who is who. They're all masked. And they all draw their swords and start fighting each other. And the crowd is very upset about this, not because they're monks fighting, but because you're not really supposed to fight on Carnival. That's the whole point, is that it's supposed to be this no. this release of energy, <laughs> but not of violence. But they fight. Cellini stabs Pompeo, and the whole crowd just hushes. So we've had this, this chaotic scene full of music and dancing, and all of a sudden there's this splash of violence, and the whole crowd goes silent. And then Cellini, they call for his arrest. 
And it looks very bad for our hero. He's about to be taken away, arrested for murder. It's probably a good time to tell you that in the autobiography, he kills several people. <laughs> oh, yes. This rings very true to the yeah, autobiography. He, he's always at sword play. Always. I mean, you think he kind of had to be always carrying all these valuable things. And Yeah, and he, he fought. He made a lot of enemies. He fought a lot of duels. He, he sued a lot of people for insulting him or not paying him. He, he lived a very eventful life, very litigious yes. life. Like at one time, he, he was, there was a duel and he, he went to shoot in the air instead of shoot at the person and the bullet ricocheted off the wall and hit the person anyway. And Cellini is like, well, it's not my fault. <laughs> so there's just a lot of, yeah, this is, this is a very familiar scene, I would say, as, as funny as it is. So he's about to be dragged away. And then all of a sudden, those those cannon shots from the Castel San Angelo, which was supposed to be the signal for Teresa that he was going to come for her and they were going to steal away. They sound. And the castle of San Angelo, I understand, has particular meaning for the real Benvenuto Cellini. Yes. So among many of his other attributes, Cellini was also a soldier. And he was a sort of a personal guard to the Pope at one point. And he defended, the Castel San Angelo was where the Pope lived during this time period. And he defended the Castel against the invaders and earned a lot of favor and commissions from the Pope for that reason too. And of course he, he mowed down a lot of soldiers, but the Pope would just, you know, give him his benediction right afterwards. Because if you kill someone in service of saving the Pope, then that does not harm your immortal soul. So yes, this is a little bit of a, a callback to, to something that really happened in Cellini's life. Mm -hmm. So those cannon shots go off, indicating the carnival is over and Lent has begun. All of the lights in the piazza go out and it's just confusion and chaos and darkness. And Cellini manages to, to slip away, as does Ascanio, as does Teresa. All of our heroes just go far away from each other. And the crowd is screaming, it's the monk, it's the monk who stabbed him. The monk is the murderer. Well, somebody, there's one who doesn't have the presence of mind to leave. Yes, of course, when the lights come up, the only monk who hasn't taken this opportunity of the darkness to escape is, is Fiera Mosca, who is, as we know, not the brightest. So he is left there and they arrest him thinking he's Cellini and he's led away. And that is the end of the first act. So let's listen to a little bit of this chaos.
This is Opera for Everyone, and we are listening to Benvenuto Cellini by Hector Berlioz. And we've just concluded Act One. As Act Two begins, Tableau Number Three, could you set the scene for us? Of course. So we are finished with the revels of Mardi Gras. It is now Ash Wednesday and a time of, of contemplation and waiting. It is Lent. And everyone has scattered. That's how we left our heroes and anti-heroes at the end of the last conversation. Ascanio and Teresa have found each other and they are waiting for Cellini in his studio. Cellini ran away because, as you may remember, he was accused of murder. Yes. <laughs> He's rightly accused of murder. He did kill someone. <laughs> he did. He did. And he, and he was in costume as a monk, mm-hmm. no less, dressed in white. And these two found each other and they are looking to comfort each other and hoping that he's going to show back up at his workshop. And as as they are speaking about this and, and trying to comfort each other, they hear a chorus of monks out the window who are praying because it's it's the beginning of Lent. And they join in this prayer because they're, they're very worried about Cellini. Teresa, of course, is very worried. She loves him. And Ascanio also loves him. He's his friend and... An apprentice, so they're they're quite worried about Cellini. And this procession of monks goes by chanting prayers. And you typically in the staging of this you can see the procession of monks going by through the window of the workshop. And as the monks are, are going by, they, they are minded to to pray as well. We'll just listen to a little bit of this beautiful duet prayer with Ascanio and Teresa. Teresa, of course, a soprano, Ascanio, a mezzo-soprano, and they're praying for the return of Cellini. And Ascanio and Teresa's prayers are answered. Cellini comes in. He is dressed just like the monks that passed by. So they are extremely surprised. Oh, and he- sneaky fellow. <laughs> He's always like <laughs> hiding in the shadows and, and dressing in costume. That's a, It's another one of his talents, I think. But what better way to sneak around the city than in a parade of monks dressed just like you are? <laughs> Cellini comes in and tells them about how he escaped in the darkness and tells Teresa that they really have to escape Rome. They must run away because, although they were going to run away before, 
from her father. It is now a little bit more urgent since he is is wanted for murder and and would be hung if he were caught. And Ascanio is completely aghast and appalled at this suggestion. But master, your statue! (laughs) But Cellini, the lover, says, forget the statue, forget the pope, forget the law, (laughs) we must go. And Ascanio, ever obedient, he leaves the scene, leaving the two of them alone so he can help prepare for the departure. And that is kind of a good way to talk about it. This is Cellini the lover. And before we've seen Cellini the fighter and Cellini the artist. And he does kind of take on these these different personas in, in the opera, at least. And when he does, everything else fades away. Right. So yes, this is Cellini the lover. And, and we do finally get a love scene of sorts between Cellini and Teresa, who really have not been left alone the entire opera. There's at least always been somebody in the shadows behind the curtain listening to them. Yeah, But now they finally get a chance to, to say what's in their hearts. Right. And we don't get the comic scene anymore. This is, mm-hmm. this is a serious romantic scene with her even referring to him as husband. opera for everyone and we're listening to Benvenuto Cellini by Hector Berlioz and our two lovers have just expressed their affection but of course this blissful scene can't continue uninterrupted. In runs Ascanio with news that Balducci, Teresa's father, is approaching. Yes and and Balducci bursts into the scene. He's got Fiera Mosca in in tow and he denounces Cellini, calls him a murderer, says he will never cast the Perseus statue, that all of that is going to go to Fiera Mosca, and Fiera Mosca will have Teresa in marriage, and it looks very bleak for our heroes. Right, and Teresa even throws herself at her father's knees because he's insulting her. He has found her in the workshop of this man. And Cellini gallantly says, she is not to blame. I am the only culprit. But he's not to be appeased. Balducci. No. 
Well, he was never a very tolerant man in the first place, and his patience has been rather tried. I almost sympathize with him, because would you want to promise your daughter to an accused murderer? Probably not. Probably not. But he, he didn't want to promise her before that anyway. So. so in the midst of all this commotion, we have an announcement. Yes. So the Pope has arrived on the scene. We have a very literal deus ex machina. Where <laughs> yes, that's a big deal for the Pope to show up at the workshop. It a is. A big deal. A very big deal. And and we know that Cellini in, in his real real life autobiography was, was quite friendly with the Pope, Pope Clement, and, and did him much good service. But still, it is, it is quite a moment for the representative of Jesus Christ on earth to arrive. And he comes with this entire entourage because that's how the Pope travels. One must have an entourage. But he is not here to help Cellini exactly. He's actually here because Cellini has taken far too long to cast this statue. And the Pope comes to say, hey, hey, dude, you know, I've paid you. What's happening with my statue? So there's this kind of, once again, I think it's a little bit of a comical moment where you've had this high drama. Teresa has just thrown herself at her father's feet. Everyone is weeping and it looks very dark. And all of a sudden the Pope comes in and is like, "Um, hey, what about my statue? Well, in some ways it changes the tone for this second act, which is a true change of tone in this second Mm -hmm. act or a, a change of focus because there was a lot of comedy and and faux drama in the first act or not the kind not the kind of drama that really gets to your guts the Mm -hmm. just the more comic drama with the with craziness at the mardi gras festivities but the pope's here and they're the father's upset about the daughter and i feel like things really change in this second act It, it it i understand some of the criticisms that were leveled against this rightly not just the people who didn't like Berlioz and his <laughs> snarky comments, because it it it's a different it's a different feel in the second act, at least dramatically. It's, it's true, and and you can see that in a couple different ways. One, this is not the last time, but this is the last time basically that like Therese is even important really in this opera. The focus, as we said before, the focus has been. Cellini as lover, Cellini as duelist. (laughs) And his motivation has been the whole time, take Teresa and marry her. And now Cellini's motivation switches to Cellini as artisan and is about 
finishing the statue. So yes, the Pope has come in and said, where's my statue? Cellini tries to make some excuses, but the Pope is not ready to listen to them and has gotten quite frustrated and threatens to give the commission to another sculptor. And of course, Firamasca's standing right there very conveniently. (laughs) Very conveniently. And seeing the Pope's anger at Cellini, Firamasca and Balducci pile on. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, yeah, you you can't have that commission anymore. You're losing the Pope's favor. <laughs> I mean, never mind about the murder anymore. But <laughs> but Cellini doesn't take that too well. No, Cellini threatens to destroy the mold that he has made for this statue. And this this reminded me very much of the autobiography, the feel of the autobiography itself, where Cellini is confident enough in his own genius that he believes that's a that's a credible threat, that he has done such genius preparatory work for this statue that to lose that art is enough of a threat that the Pope wouldn't consider taking the commission away from him. Right, and just to make this point, in most stagings, and it, indeed in the libretto it tells you to do this, there is a large model of this Perseus with the head of Medusa statue in the mm. middle of the workshop in the center of the stage and so when he threatens to destroy it it's not just threatening with words he has grabbed a hammer Mm -hmm. and he is ready to smash this plaster to bits Mm -hmm. and that would be the end of all that work yes and and that is enough he is right that is enough to move the pope to reconsider so the pope decides okay i'm i'm a holy dude i can mediate this conflict (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. I'm going I'm to yes. be struck by lightning by calling the Pope a holy dude. But he makes he makes Cellini an offer. He says, okay, clearly there are two issues here. One, I need my statue cast. And two, you've been accused of murder and are not being allowed to marry the woman you love. So right. I will intervene as the, as the true deus ex machina that, that I am. I will intervene <laughs> and say, if you can do one of these things, if you can cast the statue today, right now, then your crimes will be forgiven and you can marry the woman you love. This this opera will end happily. <laughs> if yes. you can't, then I'm going to hang you. So it, it, I actually think this is, a, this is a perfect way to set this up, that he places against it, if you can accomplish your identity as an artisan, then you can live your identity as a lover. But can he do it? <laughs> right. And Cellini says, but I need time. He goes, yeah, you got till tonight, friend. <laughs> you got. And then the Pope is semi upset with himself. But he he sort of in this dramatic way say, ah, the demon has power over me because I love art. <laughs> what an incredibly romantic thing to say. And yet it, I feel like that rings true to the autobiography. I, I agree. Completely. It's, well. a, it's a link between both Berlioz's time and the time of the autobiography. I can imagine them saying it in either time period. And now we come to the end of the third tableau with all of these characters on the stage. Everyone is singing and reflecting on their own concerns at this point. At this very dramatic moment, the Pope is reflecting on Cellini's impudence. Cellini reaffirms his belief that God will make him succeed. Again, true to what he says in the autobiography about his gifts as an artist being due to God, Teresa is afraid for Cellini. Fiermosca and Balducci are so happy because they think 
that the Pope has set a trap for Cellini, that he can't possibly finish the statue by the night. But Ascanio reasserts his belief that Cellini will succeed and God will reward his self-confidence, his valor. And the entire chorus of the Pope's entourage reassert what the Pope has said, that they, they think this is an impudent but talented man. And he certainly is. <laughs> and he certainly is. So, so let's listen to a little bit of the end of the third tableau. for everyone and we've just heard the end of the third tableau three of four in Hector Berlioz's Benvenuto Cellini and that last piece we just heard has the Pope reflecting on Cellini's impudence and Kathleen this reminded me of some of the reviews I was reading of this opening of this Hector Berlioz's first proper opera Of course, there were all the comments that were made about Mr. Berlioz doesn't know the difference between a symphony and an opera because, (laughs) well, because his, his, (laughs) I mean, his, his symphonies like Symphonie Fantastique were what were often referred to as program symphonies. They tell a story. Mm -hmm. So the music is meant to evoke all of these actions happening. And he even writes scripts for that one. And, and he, Damnesian de Faust, for example, was even though it's oftentimes performed these days as a proper opera, it's a, it's not written as an opera per se. And so he, he is in a different space than a lot of other composers who are, are more clearly in a particular mode of composition when they're writing. But what I wanted to mention here is 
one of the reviewers who talked about this opera was furious because Mr. Berlioz, and there's a lot of buildup, but the, the final throw in the hammer down that this is the great infraction was that Mr. Berlioz dares to be innovative. <laughs> he dares. And, and he's chided for that because there's a way that things are done. And in fact, I found um, this book of Berlioz's letters, which is fascinating because when he's writing about this and talks about the fact that it was at first turned down by the management of the Opera Comique. He says, yeah, I know why they're turning me down. It's not because my work isn't good. I have a lot of enemies. That's part of it. But really, they don't want someone who is going to challenge the national style. So he's aware Mm -hmm. of this criticism that's being leveled at him. It's just another way of saying he doesn't think his own innovation is a bad thing. It's, you know, we, we, we laugh because we like innovation oftentimes, not always, not always when it comes to music. But, but generally speaking, yeah, I think we, you know, in our current century, see innovation as a, as a positive thing. Generally, it has a positive connotation, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, the 19th century was a much more conservative time in, in many ways, and I think in the arts, for sure. I mean, it, it makes me think a lot about the the grand 19th century debate between color and line among artists. You know, you've got Impressionism coming in and ruining the realism, and it's the same in music, I'm sure. You know, the, the more innovation, the more threatened the people who are supported by the current system feel. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're ready for Tableau 4 the final tableau of this two-act opera. Yes, and we open with one of my favorite characters is is Ascanio. I think Ascanio gets some of the best music in this piece, which is which is kind of surprising, honestly, given that that he's kind of just a sidekick but gets to sing this beautiful, funny, interesting little aria that we're about to listen to here where he he's singing about everything that's weighing on him and on Cellini's mind, but doing it in this way to sort of comfort himself. He, he says, tra-la-la, everything is, is weighing on my mind and I'm bored and my soul is full of sorrow, but never mind. When I'm feeling melancholy, I'm just going to sing in order to, to make myself feel better. And so once again, although we've had this very dramatic ending to the last tableau, and this is something that keeps happening throughout this opera, you have these really dramatic high drama moments and then you have a funny little scene that undercuts it and and this is 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 another instance of that where i think you would expect to enter tableau four at cellini's workshop with him desperately trying to to fulfill this this order that the pope has given him but instead we we cut to our comedic relief singing this this lovely little aria it's beautiful and well it's the the youth of this Apprentice of Cellini comes through in this song, the fact that he is not a full-grown adult and he's processing it the way he can. Interesting thing about this particular number, which many people have said is the strongest number in the entire opera. It's a well-loved piece of music. It was added in the rehearsal at that initial period of time in Paris when he had presented his libretto, his entire score, and there were changes made in the rehearsal process. And this is one of the changes that was made in the rehearsal process. But I believe pretty much every production company that mounts it these days keeps it in. (laughs) 
listening to opera for everyone and we have just listened to Ascanio trying to comfort himself in this somewhat dark time and as he finishes his song Cellini his master comes in and starts thinking about his sorrows and his decision to become a master craftsman and, and the kind of pressure that's put on his life and as one is wont to do under troubles <laughs> He starts to think, what if I'd lived a different life? Yes. What if I had chosen to just become a simple shepherd, driving my flock, looking at the clouds? <laughs> and he has this moment where he, he has, well, he has not just a moment, he has a beautiful song where he talks about, what if I'd chosen this other life? And, and 
of course, it's a it's a very idealized version of what it's like to be a shepherd. But that that was a, a common theme in the 19th century, this pastoralism. It's a very romantic concept mm-hmm. that that's where you'd find comfort and truth. And and people have said that perhaps this feels like an expression of Cellini, the artist. I'm not yes. entirely convinced, but perhaps. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's very hard to imagine Cellini being anything other than, than what he, he was. But... <laughs> Especially That's true. since he, he was so driven that he yeah. defied his father on the music front. Right. And, he could yeah. have been a, a simple shepherd with his lute, but he decided that was not the life for him. And so does our, our main character here decide that although he may romanticize the, the possibility of another life, this is the only life he can truly live. Right. So after Cellini has sung his, his little wishful thinking song, his alternate universe song, he listens to the workmen who are working to fulfill this, this commission by the Pope helping him. Because, of course, it's not just Cellini who must fulfill this. He can't do it alone. He needs a whole team of workmen to help him. Right. A large bronze statue is, mm-hmm. is heavy labor. <laughs> right. And the workmen are singing a sea shanty to, to make their work easier. And Cellini is very worried and he's, he's seeing everything as a bad omen that, that this won't be completed. And he and Ascanio tell the goldsmiths who are working, you know, please, please keep working. This is really important, which of course they know. Right. And then they go out. But of course, uh, our character who's always lurking in the wings, Fiera Mosca, <laughs> appears. <laughs> And he arrives with, with some henchmen, with some, some backup, and says, <laughs> as if there's not enough going on in Cellini's life, he says, why don't we have a duel? Right. You want the woman I love? You want the commission I covet? We must fight. Which is funny because it's a har- it really harkens back to Act 1, because that's the Act 1 story of the mm-hmm. love triangle. And Fiora Mosca comes in and is, is just sort of out of time. Like, that's not what we're talking about anymore. But Cellini, the lover, reasserts himself. He says, all right, fine, let's do it right now. Let's fight. And, and Cellini, I think, is pretty confident he would win. I don't know much about Fiora Mosca physically, but it doesn't seem like Cellini is afraid of him. No, well, um, I mean, he's he's always hefting around all this stuff. But Fiora Mosca says, no, we can't do it here because if I kill you in your own home, I will be convicted of murder. I know the law. We must do it elsewhere. Okay. And Cellini's just like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> So Fear Mosca and his men leave, as you said. And then, of course, Teresa arrives and sees that Ascanio is, is arming Cellini to go duel. Because that's and, what he needs to do with his time right now. Right. And she's like, I'm sorry, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, but Cellini's like, no, no, don't worry. I've got this. I, I will take care of it. It's all going to be fine. Little lady, calm down. <laughs> and the audience is put in the role of Teresa, I think, a little bit. Like, we are in her perspective at this point because we, of course, are thinking the same thing, which is, A, this is not the time for this. B, why are you not doing the work that you're supposed to be doing? And C, she sees that the workmen are paying attention to this too, and they're stopping working because the guy who's in charge isn't paying attention, and and they're like, well, why should we? And also, as we find out, he hasn't paid them. Yes. He hasn't told them what to do and he hasn't paid them. And she tries to reassure them. She tries to do what Cellini should be doing and be the right, adult. Because at this point, Cellini has left to go fight the duel. And she's in some ways his representative. I mean, even though they've just recently connected. Mm-hmm. Again, this is part of why I feel this is it changes tone completely. It feels like it's a worker's rights mm-hmm. commentary at this point. 
because they're saying things like, we don't have bread to feed our children. And she's trying to calm them down. You will be rewarded, you will be rewarded. But Mm -hmm. it's a little heartrending there at this moment when you feel like, oh, we're thinking about something else now. Right. And of course they're right. And, And they're not listening to her because why would they? She can't convince them. You're right that it feels a little bit more like a like a 19th century scene than a scene set in the Italian Renaissance. Yeah. Because the 19th century was full of workers' rebellions and fights for, for better workers' rights and also not listening to, to women because they don't listen to her. <laughs> no. And then into this scene, Fiera Mosca appears. <laughs> Which, of course, Teresa, very rightly, is extremely upset because she thought that Fiera Mosca and Cellini were fighting. So if Fiera Mosca arrives on the scene, that must mean he's beaten Cellini and that Cellini must be dead. So Teresa faints. <laughs> course because that's what women do and it's very dramatic and so we think that that's the the plot we're going to be following now that that Fira Mosca is going to be victorious hooray hooray but he goes back to the workers rights issue mm-hmm. and he offers to pay them if they will stop working because he wants Cellini to fail and and so I, I guess you know we're, we're meant to understand that he has he has played a sort of devious little trick where he said we're gonna go duel over here go meet me there but he didn't go there he waited around the corner as is his wont and snuck into the workshop to to bribe the workers to stop working which is you know not very honorable but i guess is is very smart if you're the trickster character right so so there was a a different reason why they couldn't fight right there Mm -hmm. in the workshop had nothing to do with what he said all this gold pours out and he says yeah I can take care of you guys. But Just come with me. But in a in a very surprising turn of events, the workers see that Fira Mosca is without honor and they are insulted that he would pay them not to work. They want Tolini to pay them to work, but they do not want someone to come in and pay them not to work. That's that is dishonorable. And they are artisans. Mm-hmm. And once again, we get this reassertion of the most important thing in this play is really not love. It's artisanship. It's the work. So they turn against Fiora Mosca. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they say, we're loyal to Cellini, even if he's not paying us, even though they were just complaining about it. And then Cellini reappears because, of course, Fiora Fira Mosca wasn't where he said he would be. He didn't show up for the duel. <laughs> so he goes back to work because he's got stuff to do. Uh-huh. And he figures out pretty quickly what's going on. What? You're okay. trying to bribe my workers? And his punishment, the workmen and Cellini, their punishment, which is just, this is absolutely perfect. Once again, we're kind of back to that Marx Brothers slapstick moment. They say, all right, fine. Your punishment is that you have to help us complete this commission. And so they, they force him to, to put on an apron and roll his sleeves up and start working. But it's interesting because they they tell him this is what he must do, but somehow within the work or there's there's a, a realization on Fira Mosca's part that this is what matters in life. It's not just that he's being forced to do something. He undergoes a transformation Yeah, where he starts to care about the art as well. Yeah. And, and if I were staging this, I'd probably do something along the lines of maybe have Fira Mosca see the progress that's been made on the statue or something and, and understand that actually this is a masterpiece. And if I don't help out, well, A, I'll, I'll get a beating, but B, this really does need to be completed. That once again, the art is more important than than the other storyline. And so he does, he starts to, to help out. Right, so it's all calm and they finish the statue easy peasy, right? Well, we must have one more wrinkle in in the mix before. (laughs) I think we need more people on stage. What do you think? (laughs) 
So Fiora Mosca is already there, of course, as are Teresa, who has fainted, Ascanio, and Cellini, and all of the workers in the background. But then Balducci comes on as well, of and course. the Pope. <laughs> and his retina. So literally probably every character, every actor that is in the opera is on stage. And the statue needs to be completed. And they're trying to get it done. And the Pope is like, excuse me, I gave you a deadline. Why is this not done? Right, right. And Fira Mosca says, well, we're out of metal. <laughs> and of course, this is true. Because, and the workers confirm this, because... They haven't had the money. The The advance wasn't enough, so they don't have the money, and they've wasted time, and so they don't have the metal needed to complete the statue. And and as a, just a quick note about the statue, Perseus and the, the head of Medusa is a bronze statue, and it's it's in the Loggia in, in Florence, and most of the other statues around it are, are made of stone, are made of marble. And so to cast a statue of this complexity and and size in bronze was that was almost unheard of hadn't been done before and that's one of the reasons why Cellini is is rightly remembered as a master that he did something that really nobody had done before and the the symbolism is quite beautiful because Perseus in the story he kills Medusa who can turn men to stone with her eyes and so he is holding the head of Medusa up and all around him in the loggia, all of the other statues are stone. So right. it looks as if this statue has turned everyone to stone. And that was a way of asserting that both Cellini was superior to all of these other carvers, and also that his his patron was superior to all of the other patrons who had commissioned these other statues. So that's a brief little interlude about what he's making, but it did require quite a lot of metal, and it also required the right balance of metal. I will not pretend to know anything about metallurgy, but the real Cellini in his autobiography, he says he got all of the metal in his house, everything that was metal, and he told them to throw that into the crucible. Well, because once you get that furnace going at the right temperature and melting the metal and things are starting to flow into the mold, he he could see his progress and he mm -hmm. could see that he needed more and he needed it like right, right at that moment. <laughs> and he does. It's very affecting in the autobiography when he talks about having to grab other crafted pieces, but they're metal and they can be melted mm -hmm. and he adds them in. That is, I think, probably the closest thing to the autobiography, which translates directly into a scene mm -hmm. in this opera. Yeah. And the metaphor is quite affecting because it's it's not just he's not just taking like his dinner plates and putting it in there although he did that too but he's taking other art that he's made right. and he's subsuming that to this greater masterpiece because he sees that this is going to be his his work that he's remembered for so all of the other art in the studio anything made of metal gets thrown into this crucible and everybody's kind of like what are you doing but but he does it and then there is a giant explosion <laughs> it's very dramatic <laughs> And because he's, he's put way too much stuff in there. There's a giant explosion. And then the casting trickles out <laughs> of, the, of the crucible into the mold. And the casting is a success. And we have Hooray! this giant statue. <laughs> I don't know how they stage this. I don't know how you stage the casting <laughs> of a statue or the metallurgy. But... It must have been extraordinary because out of this crucible appears the statue of Perseus with the head of Medusa, one of the greatest statues that anyone had ever seen. 
when there's a little bit of artistic license in terms of the timing here, because of course, he explains in his autobiography that you have to wait a certain amount of time, right? as you would expect, for it to cool mm-hmm. before you know how successful your statue has been in the casting. But, you know, we don't have time for that in an opera. No, of course not. So they see the statue, it rises from the crucible, it is perfect, and everyone on stage acknowledges that Cellini is a genius, that it's all been worth it, including Fiora Mosca, including Balducci, who was quite a holdout. The Pope gives him a full pardon. Cellini and Teresa are united. With Balducci's blessing and the Pope's blessing. And so we get a happy ending. And at the end here, we get a reassertion of this this melody that we had in, in the first act. And that's the song in praise of the goldsmiths. Because as we've been saying, in this opera between different warring identities, the lover or the artisan, the artisan comes out on top. And that is the grand finale to this scene and to the entire opera in praise of art. (laughs) Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for helping us through yet another opera here on Opera for Everyone. It was a delight. to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanduil. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera opera is for everyone. everyone.